We turn with you now in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus 3 and beginning in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, we are delighted with your word, we are sometimes, uh, we admit that we do not see all of it, we do not understand every part of it, and Lord, we certainly do not grasp fully its implications for us. But Lord, we pray that you would work mightily upon us if you're able to change the hearts of the Egyptians, if you're able to force the hand of Pharaoh Lord, we pray that you would also, therefore, change our own hearts and bring us to a situation of understanding and, Lord, particularly of obedience. We pray your blessing upon this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight we carry on in Exodus chapter 3, now to the final portion of the chapter, verses 16 to the end. And what we have in these verses uh, is just a summary of the whole Exodus story told in advance. And in that way, what we have a parallel with, well, once again in God's providence, with his morning sermon. Uh, How many times has it been that as the Holy Spirit seeks to tell us something, there has been this commonality between what happens in the morning, no matter who is preaching, and what happens in the evening. And so it is again today. Uh, We we heard in Luke chapter 18 of the story of what was going to happen in in Gethsemane and Golgotha in advance of the the suffering and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this great work of redemption, all told in advance everything that was going to happen. 
And now we are hearing once again uh, what is going to happen in the redemption of, of, of the Exodus. And so the type and the antitype come together. And one more thing which I might say, uh, likewise, the people didn't believe it. Uh, when Moses is given these instructions as exactly what to say to the people and what God was going to do in advance, it was not immediately received. But that will be something that we'll speak of later. Well, anyhow, in this foretelling of the events, many of the same implications regarding God himself, the confidence that we should have in, in him and the confidence that we should have in his word, those things are very much the same and should be reiterated in our hearts and minds as we consider that this God knows what he's going to do, this God knows what's going to happen, and we should be in no doubt. And as we, at the outset of our uh, you know, coming to the, the Exodus story proper, let's not imagine that this is some adventure And in the true sense of the word adventure, of which some protagonist goes out and says, I don't know what's going to happen here, but let's let's just see, we'll we'll find out, and the twists and turns that it takes, no one could guess how it's going to end up. It's nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. Actually, God will tell them in advance precisely what is going to happen, even down to some specific details. And God, our God, through Moses, tells us also what is going to happen at the outset. Because, again, he is sovereign, and he knows what he is going to do. And that message is far more important than leaving us in in any suspense. Again, if this was a novelist just trying to, to entertain us, he might leave us in suspense and give us twists and turns, which we're not expecting. Uh, well, this is very, very interesting material. No better story could be imagined than it. But... Uh, Our God doesn't do it that way. Our God, in his condescension to his people, tells us what's going to happen in advance. And so it is. Well, this this title is The Exodus Foretold. The three, again, very basic uh, points. The words, the opposition, and the plunder. The words, the opposition, the plunder. Okay, so first of all, the words. And we see in the first part of this instruction, it has to do with words. In verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now let us again pause to remember the nature of Moses' mission here. He is not just going off his own bat. He's not a freelancer. He's not doing this on his own initiative. Maybe, just maybe, there's an element of him doing that once upon a time when he was a younger man, when he was 40. Maybe there's an element of that. But now he's he's certainly not doing it. This is a God's initiative, and he is coming bearing God's words. And he is going to be, as God's representative, he's going to be told everything everything that he should say, both to Pharaoh and to the people. There's no creativity involved here. There, there's, there's no um, room for his inventiveness in this, and thankfully not. That's the nature of the work, by the way, of the, the gospel ministry. That's the nature of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone could go off his own bat, it would surely be the eternal Son of God. But he made it very, very clear. In, for instance, John 14.10, Uh, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Every last word that he spoke, 
was on the Father's authority. In fact, in the high priestly prayer, he reminds us, he prays to the Father and reminds us as well that the words you gave me, the words you gave me, I have given. And you have this picture then of the totality of his teaching ministry having been the words specifically instructed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has delivered every last one of them to the people over this time. Now, that's the nature of the Lord Jesus' own work in his teaching ministry. That's certainly the work of Moses' representation on behalf of the living God. And it is also the nature of the the true and faithful gospel ministry of conveying the words which God has given to his people. Now, these particular words which the Lord was not going to hide from them or keep secret, and he could have, but all, it was a summary of the Exodus redemption in, in just a few words. Now, it begins with something really interesting and important, and I'll dwell on that just a bit, little bit, where he says, I have surely visited you. Um, now, you know, I have a few favorite Hebrew words, which I've already mentioned before, and I'm going to mention again. And maybe you remember the word I'm about to say, which is pakad. And it is a word to visit. It's a very special word, and it's not just an ordinary, casual sort of visit. It is a special word for God visiting his people. And like everything else, it is a two-edged sword. It goes both ways. If God is going to visit his people, then you can be certain that two things are going to happen. There's going to be judgment, and there's going to be salvation. One thing that will not happen is that things will remain the same. The situation is about to change and change dramatically because God says he's going to visit them. And the way that he says it's hard to translate, um, not, not, maybe not impossible, but challenging to translate. It's using the word twice, right? So the same verb is said slightly differently in, in, in rapid succession. And it says something like this, to visit, I have visited you. We don't have a way of saying that exactly in English, but there's no more certain way. If, if, if somebody wants to say something in Hebrew of which there leaves no doubt and makes it the most emphatic, this is the way you say it. I have certainly, surely visited you. This is the day of divine visitation. God has visited his people, judgment and salvation, redemption. They are absolutely inevitable. And this should be great good news. This was what we said, right? This was the beginning of the gospel of Exodus that God has, has seen what has happened and God has visited his people. What is he going to do then? Well, he's going to deliver them out of the affliction of Egypt. And that affliction was severe. It was no minor thing. I will not now revisit all that we've previously said, but you just have to go through the material we've seen in Exodus to see that their situation was terrible and more and more hopeless. But he is going to deliver them out of the affliction of Egypt, and he's going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. All right? So here again, here's a situation of redemption. Here's a situation of salvation. It is not, not just one thing. It is always two things. It is always a deliverance from sin and into blessedness. A deliverance from slavery and a place of great freedom and blessing. It is a, a, a turning away from sin. A rescue from the penalty of sin and justification. And then a bringing into a situation of, of sanctification and ultimately of glorification in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the fullness and totality of redemption and salvation as God gives to us. Not just one or the other. 
Now, let me just say, in all this, as he says, this is what he's going to do. He said it very briefly. I'm going to bring you out of this land of affliction, and I'm going to bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's as good as done. It's it's just a matter of time. It's actually not all that that long uh, period of time that's going to transpire. Everything's going to move pretty rapidly from from here on out until after they they make it across the the Red Sea. Um, But it's as good as done. He said it. It's, It's as good as done. Now, those are the words that he instructed to speak to the people, but he's also been given some words to speak to Pharaoh, because that's not been left to chance either. So in verse 18, then they will heed your voice. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't explain that, it's, that um, there will be some, some bumps along the road, but yes, they will ultimately heed their, his voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please... Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, the Lord knows that he's going to refuse this polite and reasonable request. He knows that from the outset. This is part of his word. But it is a reminder, I guess, even as an application on the by, that even though, even speaking to the most adamant, uh, enemies of God whom we know what their response is going to be in advance. Uh, yet there is room to speak with respect and to speak politely. This is the words that God himself put into Moses. It includes the word please. Well, those are the words that he's going to give. Secondly, there's going to be opposition. Right? God is giving the whole story in advance. And he says, look, here's the words you, Moses, are going to speak. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Uh, There's going to be opposition. In verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Because that's something else that God knows is going to happen. There will be redemption, absolutely. God knows that these words are going to be spoken. He's going to make sure of it. Even though Moses himself, as we'll see, he's not so sure. He doesn't, he's not so sure he wants to be the spokesman. But those words are going to be spoken to Pharaoh but he knows that this will not happen easily. There will, be abs- uh, there will be opposition, and this will be adamant, unreasonable, eventually violent opposition. Okay, It's no minor thing, but, but the, the worst kind of opposition. And all that is part of God's plan. I'm going to once again steal from a future sermon, as I did this morning in Exodus 9. You know what it says there? Exodus 9.15, now if I'd stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. What he's saying is, Pharaoh, let's just be clear about our relative situations here. I'm asking nicely, but, and I'm showing you these signs and wonders like frogs and flies and turning water into blood and all that. But I could have easily wiped you off the face of the planet like that. But I'm not. Why? Why? Here's the answer. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. That's why. He is, he is raising Pharaoh. He has raised Pharaoh to his position. And he is allowing him to continue on in his adamant and violent opposition so that God's power might be demonstrated precisely in this, this warfare that's going on, this opposition in the absence of which these things would not have been necessary. But he wants that to happen. And, and that's what he says then in verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my wonders. 
which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. That's, that's one of the major features of, of the Exodus story. I hope we all know of these signs and wonders which the Lord does, this wonderful series of them in growing severity, uh, of which the Lord is, is displaying his great power. And eventually, even all of the advisors of Pharaoh are utterly convinced of the immense and unlimited power of the living God. They become believers, at least in that, that sense. But that required there to be opposition in the first place. God is going to put on display all of his power, all of his ability to rescue his people in the worst case scenario, right? Of them being held hostage in the midst of a superpower nation. It's not some minor thing. Look, militarily, that's, that's a pretty bad situation even today. Uh, it's no easy thing to rescue hostages. And, and particularly if they're being held hostage in some uh, powerful and well-armed situation like these, this whole nation was in the midst of Egypt. It's the absolute worst case scenario and the leader was not playing nice. He was absolutely determined, come what may, to keep those people no matter what happened. And all this then elicits this great show of which the world has never seen of the wonders of our God. And we should be thankful for it. Again, remember what we said about the situation as they go into the promised land. Back in Deuteronomy, we said, who are there? They're giants. They're well-armed giants in fortresses that are built up to the sky, as the spies said. And good, right? That's what we say, good, because if they were pygmies armed with sticks, where would be the glory? Everyone would just say, well, those, those, you know, Israel did have a large army, and they, they actually had weapons of some sort, and they, they, they killed off those, those poor people armed with sticks, and that would be the end of it. But no, no, they're giants. They're giants in the land. They're well-armed giants living in their fortresses. And God gets to show his power and we get to see it because that's the point. God knows he's powerful. God knows there's no limit to his power and his his ability. He's not surprised by it and trying to, you know, what can I do here? He is putting that on display for you and I, for all of his people, for all of eternity. And that's part of the larger concept of redemptive history. Because were it all to happen in a flash, we wouldn't catch a fraction of it. Sometimes people ask, you know, why, why did God choose to create in the course of, of six days? Wasn't he powerful enough all to do it in a flash? The answer is absolutely he was. He was. But actually doing it in the course of six days allows us to catch it frame by frame as it happens in Scripture. And so likewise, could he have in a flash... Uh, rescue the people, uh, just slain all the Egyptians? Yes. Could he have, in a flash, just slain all the Canaanites and brought them in? Yes. But that would have not been to his glory, and that would have not been in the same way, and particularly would not have enabled his people to see the greatness of his power and ability to, to carry out his word. And, and that's wonderful. That's the idea of redemptive history, is that God is putting on display for us all of his glorious attributes. Look, if it had not been opposed, we wouldn't witness a half of God's attributes in action. If, and how much of a story would it have been? You know, in, in the next chapter, we, Exodus chapter 4, Pharaoh said, well, I'm sorry to see you go, but I guess I have to. Farewell. And, and off they go. End of story. How much of an exodus would that be? How much of, uh, of, of would it be of use for us? There would be some use to it, but nowhere near 
the glory, nowhere near the wonder, nowhere near the use of our own worship of this living God and of the relevance for our own situation, which is protracted, right? All of our battles, they're not over in a moment. They carry on and they carry on. And we want to see that God is able to win those battles as well. We want to see the whole breadth and, and yes, even of his mercy, that he didn't immediately wipe them out, but he gave them chance after chance. And all these wonderful attributes are on display precisely in the presence of this opposition. God knew that there would be opposition. He said so from the beginning, and it is part of his plan, his explicit plan, to, to glorify himself and to do his people good. So there's opposition, good. That's, that's part of the wonderful plan as well. So there's the words, there's the opposition which God says are going to happen, and let me say thirdly, there's also the plunder. In verse 21, it says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her, her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Now, this is surely one of the most neglected aspects of the Exodus story, but one that the Lord himself is here emphasizing. He actually spends a a, a while explaining this, and I think that we ought to then try to reckon with it and see what is he trying to say in all this. What he's saying is that God is so powerful, not only is he able to force the hands of the Egyptians militarily so that they have no choice but to let the people go, He's also able even to change the hearts of the Egyptian people to grant them favor, his people favor in their sight. And so that they will plunder them. They will be plundered voluntarily. Now that's power. That is power for sure. And that they will not leave this place poor. And that's a great, that's an amazing aspect of the redemption here. Because, of course, they were poor. Of course, in their time of now generations of enslavement, they were impoverished. All right. No, you, if you ever encounter an enslaved people, they don't have much wealth. Okay, these people had barely enough to survive, and certainly no wealth to speak of at all. And yet, the Lord was going to show His great power that they were going to leave uh, far, uh, probably more wealthy than than they came in the first place. We're pretty sure of that, isn't it? Because they came in a time of trouble. They came in a time of of famine. So it is not at all unlikely that they came. They left more wealthy than they came. But the point is, again, in this time of involuntary slavery, they had been impoverished. And this, in effect, was giving them their wages for the labor which they had provided for the Egyptians. So there's no injustice done to the Egyptians. They had enslaved them, and they they'd worked very hard to build various cities and all the rest of the things that they did. And in a sense, this is just justice done. But beyond that, beyond the mere justice done, again, the word here is plunder. That's the word the Lord uses. And what, where else do we find that word in Scripture? Well, it's what a victorious army does to the nation it defeats. It plunders. Right? So if these two nations, two mighty nations, had met on, in, the, in warfare and one had beaten the other, the, then the victorious one would plunder the defeated army. And that, amazingly, my friends, is what the Lord God has declared in advance that his people were going to do, that they were going to plunder the Egyptians. So complete was his victory over them. Now, they didn't fight. They didn't pick up a sword. They didn't do anything. But God had this great 
victory in which the people were only too glad to be plundered. Because that's part of it, of course, is they wanted them not only to go, but they wanted them to go on good terms. They had now by this time seen that whatever Moses prayed for happened. And if he prayed on behalf, he said, take this away, then the plague or whatever it was took away. And if Moses, on the other hand, prayed for something else, then, then they were going to be wiped out. And, and so it's sort of like the situation of the, the, uh, the Philistines when they had captured the ark and the Lord begins to plague them and destroy them. And they say, we've got to get rid of this ark quick. And, and the priests rightly say, if you send it away, make sure that you don't send it empty handed. You send a gift along with it of gold in order that, that this might be made right and that the plague would be stayed. And that was the, also part of the idea of the Egyptians being plundered. That the, the people of God did not go empty-handed as they left. Well, I'm sure that must have struck the people with some amazement as they were sitting there, thinking about their taskmasters with their whips and cat o' nine tails, imagining that the Lord was going to make them uh, also voluntarily hand over plunder on their way out. But this, in any case, was surely the icing on the cake of this great work of redemption. This is the kind of redemption, not some sort of bare skin of your teeth kind of situation, which they escape with their lives, maybe barely. But no, this was the complete and total and perfect sort of redemption that our God is able to provide for us. And we should draw the obvious conclusions from it. Right? That as we consider the kind of redemption that God has promised for us, brothers and sisters... Please, let us not imagine that it is some miserly, impoverished sort of redemption, but a complete and total victory that brings, in fact, great and eternal riches and wealth. God is able and he is willing to do this for us. Well, he tells us in advance the words. He tells us what's going to happen. He tells us, of course, the opposition. That's, his, that's part of the plan. It's going to add to the glory of God and the plunder as well. All of this, by the way, in addition to the things that were said on similar themes this morning, particularly in terms, as we come to application, particularly in terms of the supreme confidence that we should have in God and the supreme confidence that we should have in God's word. So we, don't, we, we just reiterate those two things, confidence in God and confidence in his word. But in addition, let us have some, some applications. First of all, that we should get on board with this. Right? There are many opportunities... In this world in which success is, is by no means guaranteed, and we do them anyways, there are some times, there are some opportunities that present themselves in which success is absolutely in doubt, and yet we do them anyways. They're worth undertaking. You think of that example, it's an often used illustration of the Ernst uh, Shackleton, his, the advert he takes out in, in which he says the probability of success is, is slender, is slim. And, and yet people, uh, and yet he had sufficient sailors um, to go on that expedition because they took that chance of even the, the slender possibility, the unlikely possibility of success. They were willing to do it because it was a worthy undertaking. And beloved, if this redemption, if this work of God, if this exodus from this world were unlikely as that, it would still be well worth our undertaking. It would be well worth everything that we could ever spend, every risk that we could take to be part of it. Because it is a glorious undertaking, it is well worth it. And in some sense, we have no, no choice. 
because we know that the, the possibility of defeat in this world is certain. The, the, the death is inevitable. And if there is any possibility, however slender of escape, we should take it, no matter what the cost. But brothers, this is, is far different than that. It's not just some small possibility hanging before us. The, the, the reality, of the, no, success is a foregone conclusion, is the way it should be put. It is a foregone conclusion. When we get on board this expedition, when we step on board this vessel of God's church through faith in Jesus Christ, our success, our victory is utterly certain. It's all known in advance. God can tell us what's going to happen. And he has told us what's going to happen. And we heard it this morning. We know exactly what's going to happen. Right? That we are going to be opposed in this world. He tells us the words by which we're to speak to the world. He gives us the gospel. What we, we, we say politely to those around us. Some of us, by the way, are going to believe. Praise God. And we, we want to take them with us. Others are going to be opposed to it. He says that persecution is, is also going to happen. And in the end, we're going to die. But then, we're going to rise again, aren't we? There will be the resurrection. In fact, in our souls, we'll never die. He says, those who believe in me will never die. We fall asleep. If the Lord doesn't return first, which could also happen, which is uh, a nice thought. And in which case, none of us will. And, and if, if he comes soon, then we don't have to taste death at all. But if he does, then our victory is yet completely and utterly certain. The Lord Jesus is going to return. He's going to visit his people and there will be judgment and there will be salvation on that day. It's all a foregone conclusion. And this right here, what we see in Exodus, however wonderful and glorious, it is just the type. It's just the foreshadowing of something even greater. It is the lesser thing pointing to something greater. God has visited his people. He is bringing about this great redemption. The main battle, the thing that really counted, is already, it has already happened. Christ has conquered death. And we, friends, are on our way to the promised land. Off we go. Our victory is certain. It's a foregone conclusion. And if you're not on board, it's never too late to join. Secondly, in prayer, we ought to remember that God can grant us favor. It's an interesting thing to imagine where he says from the outset that he's going to grant the people favor in the sight of their enemies. And these women, by the way, it's interesting there. The women are going to ask their neighbors for these precious things, and they're going to be granted favor. Because God is able to do that, you see. God is able to do that, to change hearts. And in our whatever difficulties that we might have with people, with organizations, with governments even, let's remember that God can and often does grant favor in the sight of those who might otherwise be our enemies. Right? It doesn't mean, for instance, that all those Egyptians actually became believers and joined with them on their journey. I don't know. Maybe for all we know, maybe a couple did, but certainly not the bulk of them. God, though, uses, in his providence, he uses the people and the things of this world to, to carry on and to, to forward the purposes of his church. So let's not forget to pray for that. I think this ought to be a regular aspect of our prayers. When we're in trouble, when we're in difficulty in these, these ways, that we ought to pray for favor in the sight of those with whom we're dealing. 
And all the more, by the way, for believers. Because sometimes our problem is a relationship with fellow believers. And if God can do that with people who are unregenerate, how much more can he do so with whom the common Holy Spirit, the one that's in you, is also in them? Surely he's able to do that work. And let me testify that that uh, very often, if almost inevitably is the outcome, if, if both parties come sincerely before God and pray in such a manner, uh, the, the Lord answers such requests. Well, thirdly, in prayer, let's remember also that God can grant resources, right? So he can grant us favor, and related to that, he can also grant us resources. Because, again, what happened to that plunder? Well, yes, for a brief moment, it was unfortunately misused to make golden calves. Thankfully, those were destroyed, and, and, and all that was, was uh, put into powder and thrown uh, away. But the bulk of it was used to endow the tabernacle and its furnishings. And you think about the scenario of this enslaved people who had for, for some long time lived in utter, complete poverty, barely enough to survive, and then they go into the desert and they're supposed to worship the living God, which is the whole point of that, right? The whole point of this is that we might go serve, we might go worship our God. And he said, okay, now I want you to make me a tabernacle. They're in the middle of this, this wilderness. I want you to make me a tabernacle, and it's going to take tons of gold and silver and precious stones. You're going to have to make this thing for the priest, and there are going to be 12 precious stones, and all the rest of these things that, that are, are requisite in it. And they say, we don't have anything. You're just wearing these rags. Well, that, that is, actually isn't what happened, is it? Thankfully, because of the Lord's wonderful providence... They had tons of gold. They had so much gold and silver and precious stones and and wonderful material, precious material, that eventually they had to say, stop, stop, enough. We have all that we need here. You know, you, you, you keep the rest for yourself. That's the reality that God can and does grant resources for his people. And if, they, if God was able to ensure that they'd be able to build some beautiful place of worship in the desert and or an ornate and beautiful place of the tabernacle, then we know that he can do that today. All right? So as we take steps towards the possibility of our own building and we, we look at, at numbers and we, we wonder how, how that could possibly happen, we can be certain that God, if God is for it, he will find resources for it. Again, it is not beyond the scope of possibility that sometimes he even plunders the Egyptians and uses those who would otherwise be his enemies to bring about the resources needed uh, for his own people. So let's not forget that in our prayers. And thirdly and finally, let's be thankful for the Presbyterian church government. And what I mean to say there is, what does Presbyterian mean? Ruled by elders. That's what it means, right? It's not anything particular. It it means that the congregation does not rule themselves. And on the other hand, that there's no such thing as, as, as an ongoing apostolate in which bishops of their own personal authority rule the people of God. It is rather ruled by elders. And brothers and sisters, this is what we find already in existence in the nation of Egypt, or in the nation of Israel. He says, go and gather the elders together. How is that possible? Because there already were elders in place. There had to be elders. And later on, that system is going to be reiterated and reinforced even in the advice of Jethro as he more formally appoints elders over the people, a foreshadowing of the Presbyterian system of church government. And all that we have now today in the church is just a continuation of that. 
There are elders appointed by God over the people, and they rule. They act collegially, not off their own bat, but they together meet and deliberate and vote, whether at the session level or at the presbytery level, and maybe one day, Lord willing, at the general assembly level. That's the idea, that there are elders. And let me just say, yes, we pray for the training of ministers as we think of this, this seminary. We desperately need that in this land. But we also pray for elders. And for deacons, these things are needed. As we grow, we're going to need more of all these things. And we pray that God would provide them. It's a good thing that God has always had in place for his people, um, except maybe for the judges, in the time of the judges, in which everyone did what was right in their own sight. We don't want that. But rather we know that God has given us rule by his elders, and we pray that the Lord would continue to provide for that now in the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the beautiful reality that uh, none of this work is uncertain in the slightest. That from the very outset, Moses went forward with the, should be, with a great confidence that all of this was certainly going to happen. He even knew the opposition that was going to be. He even knew, Lord, how you were going to respond. He knew about the plundering of the Egyptians. And all of these things actually did come to pass. And once again, Lord, we are those who have lived in the, in the future from that, and we have already seen them. We know them as part of history. And, Lord, we pray that, therefore, we would go forward in the greatest of confidences. And, Lord, if there is any among us who have not yet um, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that they would get on board this wonderful expedition, this wonderful voyage, as we are on our way to glory, as we move to the great redemption of the new heavens and the new earth. And Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that you are able to grant us absolutely anything that we need. And so we pray, Lord, that our prayers would be in faith and in confidence, knowing, Lord, that you're able to change the hearts of people. You're able to grant resources even for the most ambitious of projects. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would ask in such a way, knowing you're able to do it, And, Lord, we're reminded to give you thanks for the Presbyterian system of church government, uh, Lord, by which you have always dealt with your people, in which you appoint elders in order that they might shepherd your people in accordance with your own gracious plan. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would only provide more um, uh, supply in the future of such men to rightly govern, not to lord it over the flock, but rather to lead them in places of green pasture and of clean water, that your people might flourish to the glory of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.